Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 261, recorded February 21st, 2017. Today we're doing a mini-series that came out in 2007 from IDW called Klingons Blood Will Tell. Issues 1 through 3. Right. I really didn't know what this was about. I mean, other than Klingons, that's obvious. But I didn't understand what the... uh... You know, what was the point? What was the thrust? What was the upside to these these books? Uh, other than, of course, Iraq Klingons. And uh, I was interested when I finally figured out fairly quickly what the upshot of this was all about. Which is, which is? Kind, of, which is kind of like the, the Romulan series that we did. Which is showing kind of some of the events that happened in Taz, but from the bad guy's side. Yeah, so these are, I guess, I'm assuming five stories. I haven't finished the miniseries, but yeah. uh, e- each issue seems to be one episode or one event from the uh, classic Taz era, but right. told from the Klingon's point of view. Exactly. Aaron Mercy. That was the first Klingon episode, wasn't it? Uh, right, I think so. I think it was. Yep. So that's interesting seeing things from Kor's standpoint and stuff. And then they keep doing that, at least through the first three. Right. The only down... Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Jinx. The only downside is, it's like I know these stories. And yeah, you find out a little bit more by looking at it from the other side, the Klingon side of things. But especially uh, The Trouble with Tribbles, I think the second one, that wasn't the quickest one in the world. Right. That and... one they actually gave a lot of good backstory, I thought. More so than the other two that we're going to do today. Well, the only thing I didn't like about it is they went to excruciating detail how the Klingon surgically altered to look like a human uh, right. was going through sta- Station K7. And it's like, uh, yeah, so... yeah, 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 I know what happens. I know what happens. Come on, let's keep going. No, nah, I like that part. But let's Did talk you? about that when we get to it. Okay, okay. Okay, so let's, right. let's do it. Let's do it up. All right. All right, so I get the first issue. Uh, again, this is uh, Klingons, Blood Will Tell, issue number one. Came out April of 2007. Written by Scott Tipton and David Tipton, a.k.a. the Tipton Brothers. Art by David Messina. Art assist by Elena Kaskrond. Colors by Iria Travasi. Letters by Neil Utaki. Edits by Dan Taylor and Chris Ryle. All right, there's quite a few different covers, so we're going to go through these fairly quickly. The first one shows Captain Kirk and a Klingon kind of in profile, and then you see the Enterprise above Kirk's head and a Klingon ship below the Klingon's head. The next cover is a photo cover that just shows, uh, I believe, Core. The next one shows a picture of a Klingon kind of reaching out towards the Enterprise. And then below that, we see Kirk, Spock, and some Klingon D7s. The next one was a 
virgin cover of that previous one. So just without the uh, logos. And then there's another photo cover that shows um, Kirk and a Klingon, probably from Errant of Mercy. And then another Klingon cover. This is a photo cover, but this one is for the Klingon language edition, which actually had all the dialogue in Klingon or Klingonese, as it was referred to a couple times. And then the final incentive Klingon language one was just a completely black cover that just had the Klingon logo in it. The story takes place on a planet called Kronos during the events of Star Trek VI. As you know, Praxis has been destroyed, and the Klingons now have to debate on whether to take help from the hated Federation or possibly find themselves as an extinct species within just a couple of decades. A young female Klingon woman named Kaylin meets with her grandfather, Kanra. That's what I'm going to call it. Who has, <clears throat> who has the final vote within the High Council. The vote seems to be so close that depending on which way he votes, the Klingons will either face extinction or allow them to have some help. These two seem to be part of the Klingon race that still have the smooth heads. And that's obviously a byproduct of the genetic tinkering that Dr. Phlox did back in the uh, Enterprise episode. He tells his granddaughter that he must weigh all the past Klingon Federation conflicts before he's able to give his final vote. Then he starts to retell the Klingon version of the classic episode, Errand of Mercy. So we see Kalor, son of Kolax. He has arrived to the planet Organia. He and his clan expect to claim this planet with ease. When they arrive, they find a Federation Constitution-class ship, but they're able to frighten it off after a few shots. The Klingons beam down, and there they find no resistance. In addition to the peaceful Organians, they only find one Organian male who seems to actually be upset about these events, and then also a Vulcan trader. They interrogate the Vulcan and find that he is just a normal trader. Later, there's some explosions, and Kalor orders the death of 200 people in order to stop any future acts of terrorism. Soon, the Federation starship Enterprise returns with a fleet of Federation ships. The war between the Federation and the Klingons is starting, and Kalor is well pleased. Suddenly, all weapons, both hand weapons and ship-based weapons, become too hot to use. The Organians reveal their power and demand a ceasefire. Back in the present, Conra tells his granddaughter that the ceasefire with the Federation was dictated by the Organians all those years ago. He also tells her that this is not the last encounter with the Federation that their family has had. The next time they tried duplicity. To be continued. Duplicity, you say? That's not very Klingon-like. Nope, that's why it was new. Exactly. Sounds a lot more Romulan-y. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. I never really thought about that. That was a little bit of a Romulan move. In the yeah. Yeah, and you know, we'll get more into this when we get into the next issue and things like that. But, well, actually, I'm going to save that comment until we, we, we get past the next issue. So, right, so um... um 
so I like Aaron of Mercy, and I you know, I, I, I kind of dug this one. Uh, although I must say, the first thing that happens in here is the Enterprise is attacked by a Klingon ship. Right. And I honestly did not remember that. And then I thought, oh, was this... Did this happen near the beginning of the episode? So I went ahead and, and took a quick look at the episode again. And sure enough, they were attacked at the beginning. And they pretty handily dispatched the attacking Klingon ship. And I always wondered about that. Um, and I especially wonder about it here because it's a Klingon. It, it looks like a D7. Right. You know, it doesn't look like a smaller ship. It's not a bird of prey. It's... It's a full-size battle cruiser, or at least so that's what it looks like. And uh, Kirk and Company took it out pretty easily. And what they say, forty percent fewer guns or something compared to the uh, Federation ship, right? So it's like I didn't really, I didn't know that. I thought they were pretty evenly matched ships in general, but yeah, that, that's what this comic is saying anyway. You know what? Maybe I missed. Uh, I maybe I made a mistake in the. Um the synopsis so oh okay. yeah it looks like the federation does destroy that ship and then um and then the next there's another wave of klingons that come back and that's when the enterprise runs off yeah exactly right so it's uh, an escalation okay. yeah so I, I missed a page sorry about that guys oh well anyway i kind of wondered how they could be beaten so easily and they explained it by saying that the the enterprise outmatches the d7 and i just never realized that right well i know that in that x and r which i know is not canon but right. but they make a big deal about how the uh the constitution class the new constitution class would be a match to the d7 right and at least according to this comic went beyond it right yeah, like what was it, forty to forty percent more powerful? Yeah, forty percent more firepower. Yeah, which is interesting. Now, um, back in the old days of wooden ships, uh, the number of guns you had made a big difference about whether you'd survive a, uh, an, an attack or not. Because, well, you remember, like, I guess they did this probably. Well, I remember it from Master and Commander, that movie, which I thought was really cool. And I'm really the sorry. The Russell Crowe one. Exactly. I, I'm really sorry that wasn't more popular, didn't make more money, because I really thoroughly enjoyed that. Anyway, so they come up beside each other, and maybe they th did this in Pirates of the Caribbean, I don't know, but they just come right up next to each other, and they just fire at each other, right. which is really stupid, I think. <laughs> but whatever. So guns make a big difference there. I'm just wondering that the number of guns make as big a difference in space battles. Because you're not stupid enough to, like... Uh... Like, come up next to each other and just start firing at each other. Right, which, like in uh, Star Wars Episode Three, they do that. They have two big capital ships just wailing away on each other right. uh, while they're parallel with each other. Right, right. Yeah, but I don't remember seeing that too much in Star Trek. But no. yeah, Star Trek's so fickle, though, as far as what, what can destroy what. Because, I mean, it seems like you know, sometimes a photon torpedo can destroy or cripple a ship quite dramatically and then other times a ship can get hit with it and it, and it barely uh, hurt its shield so yeah uh, they were there wasn't a lot of consistency there yeah well this one took me back because I, I thought they were more of an even uh, match but anyway 
Yeah, uh, because I grew up with the movies in Next Generation. Mm-hmm. You know, you see the Bird of Prey, the, the smaller one, so much in the movies and, and in the Next Generation that that I always thought the D7 was like like bigger, much, much bigger than the Enterprise. So I thought I, I always kind of thought that, oh, that's the ship they keep in reserve. To, you know that's kind of like their star destroyer type thing, um, but I guess in reality it was it was probably supposed to be more comparable to the Constitution class ship. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I just didn't realize it was forty percent whippier, armor that wise. One, that one was. Yeah, maybe that. Yeah. Who yeah. Knows? <laughs> so, anyway, so you like this one? You thought it gave a more background on oh. at least those the first wave of Klingons. That, that I kind of really hosed up in the in the synopsis. Oh, well, yeah, it, <clears throat> it did give more there. And also we find out that Kor is from a, a pretty royal bloodline, which is interesting. Right. Uh, descended from the imperial family itself. Wow, really? Kor, you go. Didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, now is this the smooth-headed Kalis that they keep talking about or the bumpy-headed Kalis? Because that that's a... That doesn't make that's that one doesn't make sense. How there could be a smooth, smooth-headed Kalis? There shouldn't be a smooth-headed Kalis. Right, but there is, or there will be. Well, I, I'm confused by all that. I mean, quite frankly, I'm confused by some of this. So as we go through these different issues, well, I definitely have something to say about the next issue, Trouble with Tribbles. Right. It's interesting to see in these issues which ones they. They choose to have Bumpy and not. Right. I mean, obviously, the so, guys that, came, that were in Taws and came in direct contact with Kirk and company, they were all, of course, smooth-headed. Um, right. And they all seem to be from this this grandfather's bloodline. So they're all descendants of the Klingons that Phlox genetically tinkered with to give them the smooth heads back in, in the Enterprise days. Right. Exactly. And come to find out, they still, you know, we're on the high council as far as Star Trek VI. So, mm-hmm. um, but it still doesn't explain that. That part doesn't explain why, you know, Core and some of these other characters that we see during Deep Space Nine era that they, they're back with the bumpy headed. So maybe they'll explain it in issue five or six. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe when this uh, when the grandfather accepts the Federation help, then he'll be like, you know what, maybe. Maybe we should go ahead and become bumpy-headed like our brother. And... Uh, yeah, who knows? I don't well, know. He, I mean, they can't just snap their fingers and become bumpy-headed. But Well, they snap their fingers and became smooth-headed. In that that isn't quite snapping the fingers, as we'll see. <laughs> well, no, that's that's my point. In, in this issue, they're definitely saying all the smooth-headed Klingons that we know and love, you know, the dark-skinned, bushy-eyebrowed, but, but smooth-headed, yeah. All came from the genetic tinkering from Flux. Yeah. So they were already looked pretty human, except they were, you know, a darker shade maybe, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, in the next issue, they really go into a different direction. Yes. And and kind of unneeded if they already established that there's smooth-headed Klingons out there. Exactly. Exactly my point that I'll make next. Yeah. So anyways, uh, do you have anything else on this? Because I really don't. Um... Well, I guess we should talk about the art. Sure. Um, um, this style is definitely more cartoony than some of the other IDW stuff. 
cartoony. Um, yeah. Okay. So David Messina did this one, and I, I think the outlook was pretty good. I mean, how how cartoony? Just the style. Yeah, I mean, just yeah, I don't know. When, when, I mean, there's not a lot of detail in the face. I mean, I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just uh-huh. saying it looks. It doesn't look like the actors. Like when we see oh. who's supposed to be Kirk, right? The the human or the the angry Orion. He he doesn't look. He doesn't look like Shatner at all. Uh, he, no. I could see him being a cartoon version of Shatner, though. <laughs> but yeah. it, that or maybe Chris. He looks like Pike more than anything else. He looks a bit like, like the, I think he looks a little bit like Star-Lord. <laughs> all right. Chris Pratt? Chris Pratt, that's it. I forgot his last name. But that may be because I just watched Passengers this past weekend. I thought the artwork was fine. It's high-quality IDW stuff. Right. And it's not no, and again, so there you go. Hey, I love the money. Hey. Uh, I especially like the uh, the half page that showed the space battle. There's like nine Federation ships, Constitution class, going up against probably about an equal number of D7s. Right. I had no I I don't remember that many constitution class ships ever being in an old episode of it never was that's what's cool about this they never okay. showed this they just okay. talked about it all right all right yeah they didn't have the money to to have a scene like that in the show <laughs> yeah when that happened in here i was like man i i really don't remember this episode and i thought i i thought i remembered it pretty well but i was like i don't remember this at all Nah, they just talked about it okay heck they can't even handle two starships in the doomsday machine it was an AMT model kit and a Bic lighter. Anyway. Was that really it, or are you just saying that? No, I think they actually took uh, a model kit, like you get at the, the toy store, and they just melt, you know, did, did a little oh, bit of okay. melting of the nacelles, and boom, there you go. Right, because wasn't the registration on that ship, like, 1717 or something like that? Yeah, I don't think it was they, that far They only off. had to change one number. <laughs> Uh, the old days. Maybe not as bad as your average uh, Doctor Who episode, but uh, not the best special effects in the world. Right. Okay, so should we go to the next one? Yeah, let's go on to Trouble with Tribbles. Exactly. Klingon version. Right. Okay, so this is issue number two. Its uh, title is Beneath the Skin. Published date is May 2007. All the creative folks are the same, so I'm not going to repeat them. Okay, so cover A features Koloff holding a disruptor in one hand and a triple in the other. Five Klingons are behind him, and looks like they are all on Space Station K-7. The cover is by Joe Caroni. Cover B shows Space Station K-7 at the top. Arnie Darvin, who was the assistant to Undersecretary Barris, and a Klingon disguised as human from the tossed episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. There's a super hot and huge female Klingon toting a Batleth, uh, who we know is the granddaughter from the first issue. Covers by David Messina. The retailer incentive A cover is the same as cover A, but it's uh, black and white. It's a, it's a pencil, just a pencil drawing. The RIB Virgin cover is the same as cover A, but with no text or logos. Okay. 
The story opens on Quonos, where the old Klingon politician and his granddaughter are sparring with Batleths. The old Klingon speaks of the dangers of underestimating and overestimating the abilities of your opponents. He illustrates this point by telling the story of Gralmek, who was a distant relative of theirs. He was a Mughat, which apparently means small fish. His small stature was a source of unspoken shame for his family. Though Gralmek tried very hard to become a warrior in good standing, he never could find a way to overcome his lack of strength compared to his contemporaries. During standard warrior training, he would lose sparring matches badly on a regular basis. One day an opportunity arose that uniquely matched Gralmek's characteristics. He seized the opportunity despite the warnings of physical and mental pain the opportunity would bring. Gralmek was to be the first of an army of Klingon infiltrators, surgically altered to look human. They would infiltrate the Federation organization involved in the peaceful competition for worlds that the Organian interference caused. Without the option of armed conflict, the Organians forced the Federation and Klingons to prove which party could best make use of a disputed planet. The winner would take possession of the disputed worlds. The Klingons thought they were superior, so they would win even a sniveling contest like this. But just to be sure, their spies would sabotage the Federation's efforts. Gralmek endures a primitive eight-week-long process to alter his appearance, because he is a bumpy-headed Klingon, to be human-looking. With no anesthetic, he is awake for the entire process, which involves acid over the entire body to lighten skin pigment. Yuck. Pulling back the skull skin to allow sanding down of the forehead to remove the ridge. Arg. Somehow cutting open the spine and getting rid of the protruding spine bones. Yeah. Perhaps even a procedure that was done to the groin with a very sharp looking knife. Mind you, they just insinuated that. They didn't actually show anything, thank God. During recovery, Gralmek was angry towards the butchers who did this to him. But then they told him it was not reversible. He will always look human. His anger and despair exponentially increased. They move on to warn him to not allow human doctors to examine him too closely, lest they discover his three lungs and substantially larger heart. They train him how to act like a human, but it is difficult given the wild emotional brutality of Klingon behavior. Finally, Gralmek, or should I say Arnie Darvin, is ready to kill and replace the assistant administrator to the Federation effort to win Sherman's planet. He is to introduce a viral agent into the quadrotriticale grain just before it is transferred to the Federation colony. The seed will yield inedible grain that will doom the Federation colonization efforts and allow the Klingons to swoop in and take over the planet. Gralmek successfully takes over Arnie Darvin's identity and meets Nilts Barris. 
his new boss on Deep Space Station K-7. Arnie tries unsuccessfully to talk Barris out of sounding a Priority One alert that brings the nearest starship to the station. The Enterprise arrives and Captain Kirk steps up security with a mere two-man security detail assigned to guard the wheat containers. Arnie decides he must move up his timetable for tainting the wheat and sets to work. He completes his task and back in his quarters thinks about the statues they will erect back on Kronos, dedicated to his achievements for the Empire. All glory to Gralmec, acquirer of worlds. He hopes they will be very large statues. His reverie is interrupted when a call to report to Barris's office comes through. In the office, he is discovered to be a Klingon with the help of several Tribbles. With only the threat of more Tribble contact to motivate him, he admits that he poisoned the wheat. Just takes those things away! So much for Galmec's Klingon bravery. The Klingon's use of espionage ended with this unmitigated failure. The Empire negotiated for Galmec's release that finally happened with a prisoner exchange. The Klingons wanted Galmec released before he could divulge more of the Empire's secrets. Once back in the hands of his homeworld, Galmec was not killed for his failures, but rather discommendated. He no longer was considered Klingon, no longer wanted within the boundaries of the Empire. The Klingons surrounding him in a circle turned away from him as the ultimate sign of you are truly fracked, man. The story told, the narrative cuts back to the old politician as a granddaughter. Even with this story's lessons told, the old politician is not sure whether he will vote with Gorkhan and work towards a lasting peace with the Federation or not. Galmec was Klingon despite his small stature. The log he kept noted over time how he was able to work with Barris productively how he had a kind of admiration for the starship captain, Kirk. Maybe Klingons and humans are not as different as we would have liked to believe. The end. Looked much more bloody than just uh, some genetic tinkering. Oh my gosh. It was gross. Okay, so the obvious question is, why the devil didn't they just use a smooth-headed Klingon Give him a shave and a haircut and call it a day. Right. And some, you know, some makeup to, if they really needed to change his pigmentation. If they did, but, you know, there are black humans or dark colored humans. Exactly. So. Nope. Made no sense. Yeah. But it was yeah, pretty Yeah, I would have liked it if this, if they would have gone this route and uh, instead of saying there was smooth-headed Klingon, right? If in this story they were saying this is how they all became smooth-headed, it would have been good. It was all those, those all those guys sacrificed their heritage or whatever so that they could look somewhat human. Uh huh. But uh, but no, they they're kind of having it both ways. So I I didn't care for it. I, I didn't like it. Yeah. No. Um. You liked it? You loved it? Hated it? What? Um. I just thought it was kind of ridiculous. Because there are smooth-headed Klingons. Uh, however, uh, I found that the process that Gralmec went through was 
absolutely graphic. And he was awake for all of it. Oh, my gosh. And and you know which part I'm talking about where he's, like, looking down at his crotch and then the uh, one of the doctors or hacks, butchers, uh, has, like, a, this little filleting knife, like, pointed towards his crotch? Yeah, and it doesn't make sense because in, the, in a panel earlier it shows that they had already did the um, skull surgery. Yeah. And then just randomly towards the end it shows this crotch surgery. But well, he has the bumpy head. So they're obviously out of order, and no, it doesn't explain yeah. what they're exactly going to be doing. Yep. And why was it out of order? That's pretty... That was uh, that's sloppy, I think. Unless and he's they're... wearing like a, a Speedo type thing. Yeah. A little metal Speedo. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's all out of order because when it shows him doing the spine thing, he has hair, which came after the head thing, which came after the before the crotch thing. So, yep. who knows, man? I guess they could have made put on the hair so that he looked human. Maybe that was his human hair. Maybe. I don't. I don't. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, yeah. It was all right. I like I said before. I, I thought they went a little bit long. On um, on some of his covert activities, uh, but other than that, I like this issue. Yeah, like I said, I liked the explanation, and I kind of wished, you know, because they keep picking and choosing which, which of the Enterprise stuff, especially they want to consider canon. Mm-hmm. If IDW for this series would have said this is how they all became uh, smooth headed, I would have liked that better. But oh, the fact that you have. Yes, but the fact that you have both in the same story, uh, it kind of lessens his sacrifice because it seems unneeded. Yeah, kind of ridiculous. But are the smooth-headed Klingons all part of royalty or something? I mean, is that is is that the explanation that nobody with the smooth head would be low enough a station that they would use him as a spy? I I don't know. It just doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Uh, no, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But what I really did like is seeing a uh, little cameo from Cisco in this issue on page 16. Benjamin Cisco. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, exactly how do you figure that? In Trials and Tribulations, Cisco goes back in time and is on K7 during these events. So it was just kind of cool just to see him walking in the in the corridor <laughs> i have to get to the right page because i'm looking at page yeah, 16 on, uh, and it's it's a big explosion well this page, page number numbers. is one of the ones that's actually numbered uh it's probably page 18 on the pdf oh 18 okay we'll go to there right yeah 18 okay oh you're saying that's cisco yeah that's cisco yeah <laughs> That could be any smooth-headed Negro gentleman with with the goatee thing going. It is Cisco. That's funny. It's obviously so so that's purposely supposed to be Cisco. Okay. Yeah, because he's supposed to be there. That's funny. He was there, man. I see yeah. it. I, I did not recognize him as Cisco at all. When you said that earlier, it was like, Cisco, what the hell? Flocks I know about. I saw Flocks. Huh. How, how interesting. If that truly was supposed to be Cisco, 
You're probably right. Yeah. I know why I'm right. I know. It's I'm the right. only thing that makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, what also was a nice little cameo is uh, General King, Chang. What is his name in Star Trek Six? It's Chang, right? Chang. I think it's Chang. Yeah. So, I'm thinking that on page 18, um, Koloth is talking to Chang through the view screen right before the triples get beamed over. Yep. It does look like him. Did he actually call him Chang? He never does. Okay. But it does look like yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just kind of cool to see the bumpy-headed Klingon that we're going to know in Star Trek VI yep. talking to the smooth-headed Klingon from <laughs> Trouble with Tribbles. Yep. I dug that. I dug it. We've got Space Station K7, which is great. I built a model kit several times of that space station. All right. Anything else for this issue? Uh, no, not really. No. Out of the three that we're doing today, I like this one the best because I thought it gave, it veered enough away from the actual episode that I thought that it was giving me enough good story that I didn't feel like I was just rehashing something I already knew. Yeah. But it sounds like you you didn't really care for this one. Uh, no, it isn't that I didn't care for it. I think they spent too much time doing some things. So, uh, the origin of the human-looking spy, I found kind of interesting in general. But then I just thought it would start kind of getting old. Especially when they went on and on about his little covert mission to poison the grain. While he's thinking to himself, oh my god, they're going to have all this stuff for me. Because I'm such a hero. Right. Yeah, so isn't Kirk the one that says that you expect a statue or something um, as kind of a an insult? Or did he say that he expected a statue of himself? He said he, said he was expecting a statue. So as he was in, walking... In the episode. Endless... Um, no, in this issue, he, he's thinking to himself that he wants it. But in yeah. the episode... Does he say? Does he say that he wants the statue? I I don't remember anything about a statue in the original episode, uh, but it has been a while since I've watched it. Yeah. Okay, I'm pretty sure it's in there, and that's. But I thought that it was Kirk kind of being facetious um, about why he did it, but maybe maybe he did say that in the in the episode, and I don't remember it. Yeah, maybe. Sounds like I need to rewatch it. Oh, there you go. A classic episode. So even though Cyrano Jones was in here, there was really no reason to mention him in the synopsis. Uh, I didn't even know he was in it. Yeah. Just in the background somewhere? Yeah, he was in, I think it was towards the end, when they were dealing with the Tribbles. You saw him, like, like from the, actually, it's a silhouette. So there's a scene where uh, Kirk and Spock are together at the top of the page. Anyway, so it's Cyrano Jones talking. Right. Okay. I did like seeing uh, Aurora Pinte. Oh, is that where I'm they did the uh, right. trade? Yeah, the prisoner exchange. Yeah, now, I knew it was a prisoner cha- exchange, and it took place in a very cold planet. But, um... So yeah, was well, it the I ice bridge that told you it was Aurora Pinte? No, I don't know. I don't know. Sure. I'm, I'm just... Conjecturing? Yeah. It could have been. It could have been. Man, All right. They sure draw these Klingons huge. They do. He's so much bigger 
than than the other Klingons. And I don't rem- I remember him being about the same size as Kirk in the episode. Yeah, yeah. And Kirk's always the same size as Koloth or anybody else. So exactly. Yeah. I don't know so why they, they, these these are head and shoulder above. Oh yeah, they, they're guy. drawing these guys like 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 gorillas or something. And that's where I'm saying they it looks a little cartoony, right? Yeah. So I mean it from that standpoint. Yeah. And then when we get into the next issue where we see a Mugatu killing Klingon, he's just he's just ridiculously huge. He's like superhero guy. A little bit, yep. A little bit. Well, you wanna jump into it then? Let's do it. This will be Blood Will Tell number three. Came out June two thousand seven and is entitled the order of things. The writing staff and art staff is all the same from the first two issues. There's several covers. The first cover shows a Klingon with a knife fighting a Mugatu. Uh, this is a, I don't know who the cover is, Joe Conrad. The second cover shows a woman, human looking woman, with two knives uh, kind of crouching. And then behind her, we see a Klingon and a Mugatu. The next cover is a photo cover of a Mugatu. And then the last cover is a virgin cover of the first one, which is the Klingon with the knife about to cut the Mugatu's throat. So the story starts with Kaylin and her grandfather, Kanra. They continue to discuss their past run-ins with the smooth-headed Klingons and the Federation. This time, the grandfather recounts the events from the classic episode, A Private Little War. Alright, so the backstory starts with Commander Krell of the Korthos arriving to the planet Nurel. Here, he's going to try to influence the population to choose to join the Klingon Empire instead of just conquering it, since that would break the Orion Accords. Krell and two other Klingons beam down to the planet. Each of the three Klingons are attacked by Mugatus. So this is one Klingon versus one Mugatu each. Only Krell survives after he's able to kill his Mugatu with his bare hands. The other two Magatu run away once they have killed their Klingons. Krell watches over the hill people and the village people from the planet. He feels that the village people share more of his aggressive values, and he meets with a man named Apella. He provides a flintlock rifle to the man and shows him how to use it. Apella agrees to use the weapon against all his enemies. Over the course of several months, Krell continues to meet with Appella each month, and the village people all seem to quite enjoy killing the hill people. Krell continues giving him more and more weapons, more advanced weapons. On one such occasion, they are ambushed by two humans that Krell does not think were hill people. The two were able to steal a few guns, and when the Klingon ship reports that a Federation ship is also in the area, Krell requests immediate beam-up and leaves Appella speechless. They now know for sure that the Federation is involved. A month or so later, Krell visits again, and this time he finds that the Hill people are now equally armed and they're fighting back. 
Most of the village is now burning and in ruins. Krell speculates that the Federation is supplying them with weapons similar to what he's doing. Appella requests better armaments, but Krell refuses and says that his plan to expand the Klingon Empire has failed. The end. Okay, so Krell is one bad ASS Klingon. Woo! I mean, Kirk survived his fight with a Magatu, but that's because somebody else killed a Magatu, right? Yeah, I was I was trying to remember what happened in that one. Because yeah. doesn't somebody get bit by the poison? Well, yeah, Kirk does. Yeah, Kirk does, okay. And then the witch woman has to save him. So Kirk didn't defeat <laughs> the Magatu, but this Klingon sure does. Woof! Barehanded. Yeah, snaps the neck. All right, so yes, the guy is uh, a bad hombre. Well, anyway, so he's huge, he's massive, and he's able to take out a Magatu. And these are pretty nasty Magatus. Yeah, they look bigger. I mean, they look much bigger than the one that fights Kirk. Yeah, and of course, the one that fought Kirk was just a guy in a gorilla suit. But uh, these things are drawn, I mean... They are just nasty. I mean, they're just slobbering, and they're very aggressive, and they're they're huge. I I, I don't right. know. I mean, if he had if he had a knife or something, and he used that, I could see that being more logical. But just to be able to kill the Magatu like barehanded, whew. yeah, it looks like he grabs the horn from the back and then uses it as leverage to snap his neck. Yeah, something like that. So the other two Klingons that are killed. Far guy in the panel uh, looks like uh-huh. he's been pierced through the uh, the middle of his body by the right hand of the Magatu, which is okay. Yeah, he's punched so, right through his spine. Yeah, something like that, which is okay. It's just, mm, I really would have preferred if he would have used his horn. So Magatus are basically just white gorillas with, for no apparent reason, they've got a big horn on their head. If they're not going to use it when they attack, that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see a Mugatsu head sticking out of the Klingon gut. Sorry. Very simple answer to that question. Very simple. The horn on a Mugatu is only used during the mating of the Mugatu. Oh, why did you go there? In what way are you saying it's used? (laughs) Uh, They use it to attract the females. Ah, uh, everybody knows the old saying. Which is what? (laughs) Large horn, (laughs) you know. Okay. I got you, I got you. Okay, we won't go any further. (laughs) So I I was interested. Yeah, we uh, should uh, try to look that up to see if anybody's tried to explain the use of them. Yeah. (laughs) So one thing I found really interesting about this is this issue did talk in a little bit more detail about how the the explosion on Praxis had poisoned the ozone layer of Quonos. So I knew they were in trouble from Star Trek VI, but I didn't realize the exact details. I mean, if Spock mentioned it or somebody mentioned it in Star Trek VI, I don't remember it. But I thought it was really interesting. So 34 years until the Klingon race wouldn't be able to live on Quonos unless they're able to do something to reverse the effects. 
So I, I didn't realize that, that those were the, the kind of situation the Klingons were in that ultimately led them to sewing for peace. Yeah, I don't think that's actually mentioned in, in the movie. Yeah. But I'll be honest, I haven't read that book, so maybe the novel went there, but uh, that, right. this was the first I heard of it, giving an actual explanation as to what was happening. Exactly. So I, I thought it was cool. It, it gives them more motivation, because come on, why, why should the Klingons ever want to sew for peace? This, well, it gives them a pretty good reason. Well, just losing one planet should not be enough to cripple the whole empire. Not a star empire, but it is your home world. Yeah, well, find another. <laughs> Vulcans did it, but they really had no choice. Right, yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know. I mean, it, it's... I don't know. I don't want to say it's a weaker explanation than just having a supernova wipe out the whole empire. Right. Uh, but it's it's as weak as that. I've never I never liked the idea of just losing Kronos would to kill the whole empire. Yeah, losing the moon, hundreds yeah. of planets. Right. right. Yeah. Well. But at least this explained, like you said, uh, the reason why they will it, lose the planet. It gave a better reason than I think Star Trek Six gave them. Agreed. Yeah. So, Ken, so out of the three, did you think this story gave enough outside-of-the-box information of what you didn't already know during the episode, as opposed to the other two? No, probably not as much. Although I did like seeing uh, some more Mugatu action. Right. Yeah, so aside from the Mugatu action... Um, was there anything really different that we didn't already know from, from the episode? Well, I think we found out that Krell likes to drink blood wine. Assuming that's what it is. I thought it might be prune juice. <laughs> it was too red for prune juice, my friend. I know my blood wine. And I also it's funny like... that we both picked up on the same panel. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well... They made it kind of obvious. Uh, I also like compare and contrast of Krell's meeting room compared to the Enterprise one. So he's there they talking the same, to... Right? Except... Go ahead. So he's there talking to his men, uh, just like Kirk would do in a conference room kind of thing. And it's triangular shaped instead of like like more of a rectangle or whatever. And they've even got the the different monitors in the center of the table, like the Enterprise does. But they're like triangle shape, which really does not look very efficient to me for the shape of a monitor. But um, I thought that was kind of kind of cool. Right, but even on the Enterprise, it's it's also a little pyramid shaped. I mean, it it has a flat top, but it isn't it also triangular? I, I thought it was that in the conference room on the Enterprise. I thought it was rectangle, but... It's a rectangle? That's what I thought. Okay, but maybe. I'd have to go and look at a, a photo to confirm that. Okay. Well, when I was reading this, I saw that, and I was like, oh, it's cool. The the triangle monitors are popular here, too. But maybe you're right. Maybe it is a, a rectangle where it has four sides. Yeah. I thought it only it, had three. 
Well, maybe it has three sides, but I'm pretty sure it's rectangle. But whatever. All so right, this I, is cool. I, I, I just kind of always remember it as being a little pyramid shape with a like a flat top. But but maybe it is rectangle. I don't remember. Well, maybe it's the. Uh, You're the Taz expert, not me. Maybe it's a three-sided thing, so that if you look down from the top, it looks like a like a triangle. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. Perhaps. I'll try. I'll try to find one. But okay. Hold on, I found one real quick. Did you? Faster than I thought. All right. So yeah, on the Enterprise one, it is it is triangular on the top, but then the sides are. TVs, so well, exactly. it's like three TV screens pushed up together. So it just right. doesn't have the pointy top like this Klingon one did. Okay. Well, yeah, right, because it's a triangle-shaped monitor. So the triangle bit on the Enterprise room is pretty much if you look at it from the top. Right, right. Which is cool. That's that's cool. And actually, but I wonder I, why this whole the three-way doesn't ever never made sense to me. Why, why not make it? I don't know. I mean, you can more or less see it uh, with the three the three sides, but I don't know. Cheap? I don't know. <laughs> it looks too symmetrical if it was four. I don't know. Right. Well, it's all obviously before hologram technology like that. I'm pretty sure they have in the J.J. Abrams universe. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Float out there. So one thing I am noticing on this season of The Expanse they do even more stuff with, uh, basically they don't use monitors for the most part. So if they're in meeting rooms or something, they just have like holograms floating around the middle of the table. And people are interacting with them with, uh, with hand gestures and things. Huh. I need to watch this show. Yeah. So they'll have something on their little terminal, a little hand terminal, and they'll make a movement to kind of like, uh, like take it from their hand terminal and just throw it up into the uh, middle of the conference room where there's like a like a tactical kind of hologram there. It's pretty cool. Kind of like Minority Report. Uh, yeah, kinda, kinda. Anyway, good show. Well worth watching. I didn't think Kirk and Company looked much like them, like the actors. Right. Nope. And of course, Captain Krell looked like. You know, like superhero time. Yeah, especially that last panel where his hands are on his hips when he's yep. saying that. Uh, I guess he learned from from this mistake, and so that therefore it's it's a win. Uh, yeah, right. But, yeah, I was really struggling on how he how he saw that as a win. I mean, the village people are are completely destroyed. Yeah. By the way, YMCA. Every time you said that, I felt like singing YMCA. Oh, for the village people. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, definitely a scene we did not see in the TV show. At least I don't remember seeing the episode. The Hill people really laid a herd on them. So that is something at the end of the, at the, end of the story. That dark-haired guy is just sitting there on the ground like, Oh my God, my whole life is ruined. And the Klingon's going, You know, it's a good day. <laughs> right. I learned something today. Exactly. It's like an episode of South Park. You know, I learned something today. No, I did like that last page only because we never 
you know, Kirk and them come through, they fix the problem or whatever, and then they're gone. Right. And you never see what really came of their fix. And Typically. and to me, this was a nice little, like, uh, it's not always pretty. Because, I mean, he they basically gave the hill people enough firepower to completely destroy all the village people. and Right. We don't know about that part. Yeah, and that's interesting that Krell was like, you know, I'm not going to keep escalating. What's the point? I'm just going to let you uh, go to the dogs. <laughs> I thought that was surprising. I just figured the escalation would keep going. but Right. All right, so, anything else? Pretty good so far. I like them. And I got nothing else to say about this one. Yeah, I agree with you. I like them. I like the parts that explain how they got there or what happened afterwards. Uh, I'm not really liking all the parts that they're just kind of retelling you what, what you already knew that happened. But uh, the good thing is is that they're not spending too much time on re-showing you the exact scenes that you'd already seen. Exactly. So Although they do a little bit of that. A little bit. Yeah, because it's bit, part of the story. But not as bad as it could have been. Right. All right. So what's next, Ken? We're going to do five and six of – or I'm sorry – Four and five of this series. Four and five, and Alien Spotlight number two. Ooh, cool. Is that Klingons. one the, the Klingon one? Yeah. Nice. I, so we didn't do that one already. Very, very good planning on your part. Yep, all but, part of the plan. Exactly, because we've done most of the most of the Alien Spotlights. I thought. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, we still got a few. So. Uh, I thought this was a good spot to put the clean on one. Right, very good. So, oh, I see we have Borg. We didn't do Borg. So Alien Spotlight number five. Okay. Right. Yep. That's so that's going to be coming up in uh, episode two sixty six. Yeah. But next next week we get more Klingon goodness. Right. Retelling of two more classic episodes, and then we find out, you know, maybe uh, maybe this guy doesn't vote for the Federation help. We don't know yet. Yeah. So we don't know. I'm it's liking the, I, I I like the, I like the uh, the book parts or the the bookend story parts. Right. A lot. Yeah. Cool. Let's reconvene next week to get the rest of the uh, Klingon story, the whole story. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.